This is VLX number 138, Broadening Their Phylacteries. We are in Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. VLX stands for Video Lexio Divina, your patristic Bible study and Ignatian prayer series online. God give you his peace and nomine patri sefiti et spiritu sancti. Amen. God our Lord, we ask the grace that all of our intentions, actions, and operations be directed purely to the service and praise of your divine majesty. In nomine patris sefiti et spiritu sancti. Amen. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. Verse 1 today, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, this may not seem like a very interesting beginning, but think of all of these crowds, all these people who've been longing for a shepherd. They kind of have a gut instinct that all these Pharisees are hypocrites, everything we just heard from our Lord today. They kind of have this sense they've been uh, given the short end of the stick as the sheep, seeking after true shepherds. They know Jesus is the good shepherd. And today, even though Jesus has said it quietly to the Pharisees and then loudly to the Pharisees, maybe not yelling, but he's made it clear to the Pharisees, well, Today's very unique because he turns and he excorates the hierarchy of his day, but he says it to the people. That's what's really amazing about this. Listen to what Father Lapide has to say. By Christ's most wise answers, questions, and reasonings, he had repeatedly confounded the errors of the scribes and Pharisees and had proved to them in many ways that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, by miracles as well, and after he had discerned that the scribes were not moved thereby to faith in him, but rather plotted the more to destroy him, then I say, says Father Lapide, Christ crushed their persistent effrontery with this powerful and passionate speech by which he unmasked their pretense of sanctity and showed their lurking dishonesty so that the people might avoid it. So again, verse 1, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, he's not talking to the Pharisees, now he's turning to the crowds and he's going to tell he's going to tell them how bad these Pharisees are. I think we have to ask a couple questions at this point. The first is did Jesus want to get to this point of publicly exposing how bad the hierarchy of his day was? Probably not, but now he has to. Of course as God, even in his human uh intellect, he knew this was this day was going to come. But um, he established this religion, so it couldn't have been in his positive will, only his permissive will that the hierarchy got this corrupt. Now, did Jesus want to start a new religion? Well, to say yes to that is kind of the Protestant answer. Let's talk about what the early church and the Catholic church, even up to the point of Trent and beyond, Council of Trent and beyond, taught about Judaism and Catholicism. Now, the early church and Trent say that 
Old Testament adherents, I think you know what I mean by that. We have to make sure we don't trip up certain algorithms. Trent says that Old Testament adherents without New Testament fulfillment became a false religion at the resurrection of Christ. I know that's not very politically correct, but this is why. There's only one true world religion. What was that? Well, that was Judaism before the Paschal Mystery and Catholicism after that, but it's really considered one religion. In fact, this is even why we don't believe that there's numerous Abrahamic religions. I know people are kicking that term around Abrahamic faiths and Abrahamic religions, but did you know there's only one Abrahamic religion? It's Christianity. How do we know this? Well, when the Jews claimed Abraham as their father, Jesus himself in John 8 says this, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth. And then a few verses later, Jesus says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Okay, so no, the false religions of the world do not have Abraham as their father, no matter what kind of home is being made in Abu Dhabi or whatever. It's right there in John chapter 8. There's only one Abrahamic religion, and it's Christianity. Okay, but back to that first question. Did Jesus want to get to this point of publicly exposing how bad the hierarchy that he established as Yahweh, because remember Jesus is Yahweh, that he himself established in Israel? No, because you can't start a new Israel. There's the old Israel, which is the Hebrews, and there's the new Israel, which is the Catholic Church. And we have to admit this, even me, no matter how bad the hierarchy gets, there's still only one Israel. And this leads directly to Jesus' next couple verses in Matthew 23, verses 2 and 3. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' Moses's seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. Now, let's be honest here. The Catholic Church crisis right now is worse. Because notice this, Jesus just said of his hierarchy... They're in Israel in the first century. To He just told the people to do what they tell you to do, but don't do what they do. But today, regarding the Catholic Church hierarchy embroiled in all kinds of child scandals and financial scandals, well, of course, it's obvious you shouldn't do what they do, at least many of them. But here's the question. Should you do what they tell you to do? The answer is only within the bandwidth of their competence. That, that word competence comes right out of... Um, a Man for All Seasons with St. Thomas More. You have to remember, almost all the bishops except St. Tom, St. Uh, Fisher defected from the faith. So you couldn't just sit around and say, God would never let this happen. Well, he did let it happen. And unfortunately, we were born in very difficult times, but we're going to see the answer in the second half of this podcast, why not to despair. So how do we know that things are worse? It's not just refrain from doing what they're doing, actually refrain from doing what they're teaching you. Well, I'll give you a couple examples. If a bishop tells you to receive Holy Communion in a state of quote-unquote remarriage without an annulment, you obviously disobey. Did you guys know, I got this from Chicago News. This isn't from some Rad Tribe website. I saw this in the Chicago News. Cardinal Supich says that those who commit, will call it the James Martinson, as Anthony Stein calls it, those people can receive Holy Communion without confession as long as they have the approval of their spiritual director at the interior forum. That, that teaching will obviously lead people to hell. So do you see why this is worse today in the 21st century than it was in the first century? The Pharisees of the first century at least preached the law of God, which, by the way, they didn't follow. 
That's why they're hypocrites. But the modernist bishop no longer even preaches the law of God as known and explained for 2,000 years in the Catholic Church. I'm not saying all bishops are modernist heretics, but most of them are. And so you have to refrain not only from imitating them, but even following their heresies, at least as they divert from the articulated faith and morals of the Catholic Church, as always taught by the fathers, popes, councils, and saints. Okay, and then in verse 2 in Greek, there was just those two words, Moiseos Cathedros. Moiseos Cathedros, that means the seat of Moses. You might recognize the word cathedros there. That is the root of our English cathedral. And of course, it means where a bishop seats to govern and teaches diocese. And of course, the most important, to offer sacrifice. Now, Father Lapide compares the seat or chair of Moses, of course, to the seat or chair of Peter today. Now, I know what many of you are thinking with this verse. Verse 3 just said, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. But hold on, here's the thing. There's an interesting monkey wrench that we have to throw into there. Did you know that in first century Judaism, there may have been a mirror of a bifurcated high priesthood that we probably saw in the 21st century in Rome? Okay, this is a little bit of inside baseball, but it really plays into today's verses, so I'm going to say this. There are some traditional Catholics who pointed out last year, when Pope Benedict was alive, that there were two high priests when Jesus was crucified. So we're talking about 2,000 years ago. There were two high priests when Jesus was crucified, and that may be mirrored in the current crucifixion of the Catholic Church. And here's the thing, you weren't supposed to have two high priests in the first century, namely Annas and Caiaphas. I have a friend who's written dozens of pages on this, and I asked him just to text me a couple verses on it, and here's what he wrote. At the time of the Maccabees and Antiochus, a type of Antichrist, you had multiple high priests. Onias was the only legitimate one. Jason was false, and so was Menelaus. And, listen up everybody, at the time of our Lord's Passion, you had an odd arrangement in the high priesthood as well that was contrary to the Torah. Okay, that's the end of his text. So, my friend's obviously talking about Caiaphas and Annas, a bifurcated high priesthood, may have been partly responsible for crucifying Jesus. Now we fast forward to 21st century. I would say this, a bifurcated high priesthood in 2013 may be responsible, partly responsible for crucifying the Catholic Church. Now, of course, that stuff's too deep to tackle on a podcast like that, like this rather, but keep that in mind when we heard the basics of obedience today in Matthew 23, verses 2 and 3. The point is we're a different point in history than just doing what they tell you without any discernment of what's actually happened at this level of a global loss of faith. This global loss of faith has to play in to our understanding of obedience. Now, Jesus continues to rip on the hierarchy, but remember, from verse 1, he's actually saying this to the lay people of his day. So we continue in verses 4 and 5. They that is, the scribes and the Pharisees, tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. One quick example of this would be the Vatican never takes in all these immigrants. They're, they're demanding open borders in Europe and the United States. Why aren't these swarms of immigrants invited into the Vatican? Because they're hypocrites. Broadening the phylacteries is the title of VLX 138. Okay, back to 2,000 years ago. What's a phylactery? Father Lapidi says there were certain pieces of parchment around the religious leaders' arms and foreheads with the shema written on them. 
That's Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart and with your whole soul and with your whole strength. Okay, now, of course, there's nothing wrong with scriptural reminders, but the Pharisees, they were doing this for social advancement, not to remind them to love God more. St. John Chrysostom says of this verse, Christ shows that theirs was a double wickedness, both because they wish the multitude to live in the strictest possible manner without the least indulgence, and because indulging themselves inordinately, they assume great license. So St. John Chrysostom is just calling the Pharisees hypocrites right there. You know, uh, Rich Mullins, he was known as the king of Christian music. He was on his way to become Catholic when he died in a car wreck in either the 80s or the 90s, 1980s or 1990s. He has a beautiful song called Love of God, and here's part of the lyrics. might sound like out of left field, but you're going to see where this ties in. This is from Rich Mullins' The Love of God. Just a couple of verses. He writes, Now I've seen no band of angels, but I've heard the soldiers' songs. Love hangs over them like a banner. Love within them leads them on. To the battle, on the journey, and it's never going to stop. Ever widening their mercies and the fury of his love. Oh, the love of God, and oh, the love of God, the love of God. Notice again right there, ever widening their mercies and the fury of his love. Rich Mullins is saying that instead of widening your phylacteries to just look pious, you should widen your mercies, the mercies that you show others. It's a great play on today's verse. That is that Christ wants us to widen our mercies, not our social advancement for the gospel by looking witty or like we know canon law, or like we know how to do virtue signaling against others. He wants us to widen our mercies. Okay, and then in the next verse, Christ continues to show what's wrong with the Pharisees. He says, They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. So, of course, this reminds me of modern-day bishops who love, love, love fundraising pro-life dinners at fancy hotels, but they're rarely found praying at the killing centers. Next is where Jesus switches gears to show he is to be their teacher of this new budding Christian community. Keep in mind, greatly made up of Jewish converts who will be baptized within a year of Christ saying these words, because we're in a few days of his crucifixion, and then within 50 or 60 days is Pentecost, many Jews come into the faith as we see in Acts chapter 1 and 2. And so Jesus now shows to these people, many of whom will become baptized Catholics, he shows how his teaching, both exterior through the apostles, which will become the Catholic Church, and interior through the Holy Spirit's gift of counsel given to everybody baptized in Acts 1 and 2 and beyond, will soon replace these hypocrites, even though they validly sit on the chair of Moses. They become part of the false religion at the resurrection of Christ. But imagine the peace in all these listeners, these people who've been so hungry for the teaching of Christ, for a shepherd who's going to teach them the way of God. Imagine the peace in this entire environment as Jesus switches gears to show how he will individually be the teacher and lover of each one of these souls, of these people listening, of these sheep up to this point without a good shepherd until Jesus comes on the scene. So Jesus says in verse 8 and 9, but you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. Father Lapide clarifies that there's nothing wrong with getting a PhD in theology based on today's verse. And yes, Lapide literally calls it a doctorate. That just means teacher. Actually, same word as rabbi, really. 
So there's no problem with getting a PhD in theology, according to Father Lapide, as long, here's the, the key, as long as it's to teach the traditional gospel, not for your own social advancement. Father Lapide writes about this, quote, Christ does not forbid the doctor's degree, but the proud, haughty ambition of the name and the arrogance whereby a man should be pleased with the name of doctor, end quote. So he wrote that before there was a ton of heresy except for the Protestant revolt. What he's saying there is it has to be in humility. And what's the most humble thing you can do? It's to teach the very faith that Christ gave to the apostles. And so this means everyone likes to always point out that the bishops are the successors of the apostles. That's true. They sit on the seat of the apostles, but they're also called to teach the faith of the apostles. I don't know how everyone always misses that second part. So this means that the bishops are not just called to have, say, a decree, a degree in canon law, but they are called to teach the faith once given by Christ to the apostles. The faith in the liturgy doesn't change except for tiny, tiny, tiny parts of the liturgy. By the way, no matter what people say about a pastoral council or whatever, is so obvious the faith cannot change. Only heretics believe they found something new, and then they always get proven to be heretics. And then verse 9, And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Okay, so obviously a lot of Protestants or evangelicals will use this line against Catholic priests like myself who go by father. Well, how do we Catholics answer this? First, you can just ask the Protestant what he calls his own biological dad. He'll, of course, say dad or father, but then he'll add that's not what Jesus meant in this passage. But then you can just ask him why he knows Jesus' intention so well if he's going to reject what Jesus said literally about calling no man father even your own biological dad. Of course, they won't have an answer. Well, we also know that the only saint that Protestants really listen to as much as Jesus, and Jesus wasn't a saint, he was God, but the saint that Protestants like a lot and many times even put ahead of Christ, our Lord, unfortunately, is St. Paul. Now, St. Paul is my favorite saint besides the Blessed Virgin Mary, so I love St. Paul, but sometimes Protestants act like he's the only saint. Okay, but even if he were, what does he say about this? Well, in 1 Corinthians 4.15, St. Paul writes this to the Corinthians. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So right there, even evangelicals will admit that the Apostle Paul was a celibate. So right there, he calls himself a spiritual father. Again, he said, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Thus, this means we can call people father, both biological fathers and spiritual fathers like myself. So what then did Jesus mean? Father Lapide simply says, no one is to replace God the Father as the author of all life. If you think that's a stretch, just remember, St. Paul himself calls himself father to his people, and then any evangelical will admit the Bible can't contradict itself as its author is the Holy Spirit. Okay, and then verse 10, neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Now, normally the word for teacher in Greek is didaskalos. Didaskalos? But here it's a different word. It's kathegitis. Kathegitis is a combo of two words, kata, meaning according to or against, and hegeomi, which means to lead. Hegeo means to lead. And that last word is the root of our English word hegemony, which is rule by imperialism. Basically, colonialism when one group rules another. So we could translate kathegetes as leader or instructor or teacher or master. But let's use that word leader 
And listen again to verse 10. That would be, Neither be called leader, for you have one leader, the Christ. Okay, back to Protestants. Now, Luther would like that because he rejected the Catholic Church's magisterium. But we today, we traditional Catholics who hold to the magisterium, also have to admit that there's somewhat of an eclipse to the visibility of the Catholic Church in the hierarchy due to this heresy of modernism that is nearly everywhere. Yes, I still believe the bishops are valid bishops, but here's the thing. Teaching is so off the rails nowadays that many traditionalists say that we are somewhat in an eclipse of the Catholic Church as far as her visibility, and I agree with that. So for this reason, we who hold to the old school magisterium, we're given a very different comfort from those words than maybe Luther was given who rejected the magisterium. Listen again to these beautiful words through the eyes of remembering we do have somewhat of an eclipse to the visibility of the hierarchy of the Catholic Church due to the heresy of modernism. Neither be called leader or master, our Lord Jesus says, for you have one leader or master, the Christ. That is, the light of Christ will get us through this eclipse of the church more than any single hero you tend to hang your hat on. And in the last two verses, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Speaking of the church crisis, we have to remember that the only way through this is going to be humility. That's not against boldness. That's not against courage. But we have to remember, if we let it go to our heads, that we're traditional Catholics, we can fall. That verse there, it's pretty self-explanatory, but one interesting thing in the Greek there is that the word servant, as in the greatest among you should be your servant, the word servant there is diakonos. That's the same word used in Acts of the Apostles for deacon. One of the three levels of ordination we still have today, deacon, priest, bishop. Well, a loose translation then could be, the greatest among you shall be your deacon. It's almost like, don't aim for the priesthood, be content with being a deacon. And that is what St. Francis of Assisi did. Did you know he was never ordained a priest, only a deacon? Yes, in fact, Father Lapide applies that sentence directly to St. Francis of Assisi as he writes, the maxim of Christ was put into practice by the humble disciple, or rather teacher of the gospel, St. Francis, in all the actions of his life, as St. Bonaventure has shown in his life. And by life right there, Father Lapide means the biography that St. Bonaventure wrote about St. Francis. That's the one you should read on St. Francis of Assisi. Why? First of all, because St. Bonaventure was a saint, and secondly, because he knew St. Francis in real life. There's thousands of books out there written on St. Francis of Assisi, but you will never beat the original one written by St. Bonaventure on that great saint, St. Francis of Assisi. Please say an hour, Father, for me, at Benedictio Deum Nepotentis, Patris et Fidi, et Spiritus Santi, descendet super vos et maniat semper. Amen.